Hi everyone and welcome back. This is Disability Saves the World with Dr. Fadi Shinuda. I am Fadi Shinuda. This podcast brings you insights from leading experts in disability and math studies from around the world. You'll hear about the research and work of disabled scholars, activists, artists, and our allies. You'll also get some insight into their lives, their favorite non-DS activities, hobbies, and adventures. Most importantly, however, you'll hear how they think disability can save the world. My name again is Fadi Shinuda. I use he, him pronouns. I have a PhD and I'm currently a postdoc in London, although I'm currently in Toronto. I identify as a fat, disabled cis man of color. If you want to get to know me a little bit more, you can check out my website at fadishinuda.com. But now I want to get to today's show. We are joined by Dr. Jenna Reed. Jenna, who uses she, her pronouns, is an assistant professor in disability studies at Ryerson University in Toronto. Jenna is an artist, activist, and reluctant academic. Jenna and I are also writing a paper together about online teaching and learning, which I'm very excited about. I'm delighted to be speaking with her about her work. Art as giving us a way to not just dream differently, but mobilize those. Her life outside of academia. I actually can't get through a day without excessive amounts of Earl Grey tea. And I'm intrigued to find out how she thinks disability can save the world. Hi, Jenna. Hi, Fady. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So I want to jump right into segment one. I call this Inside the Project, the research, the work, the art. And you might be the first person who actually might talk about art. So I'm really excited about that. Um, So I wanted to ask, as someone who is in um, math studies, who teaches at the school that kind of started uh, in some ways math studies, why disability studies? Why math studies? Yeah, so I guess this is um, kind of an interesting question for me because uh, definitely I see Ryerson as a hub or a school that has done a lot of work in kind of bringing math studies into conversation or into academic spaces um, in relation with disability studies. But I started uh, my academic career at Ryerson as an undergrad in social work. And I was uh, writing about my experience within the psych survivor community in my papers at a time when the social work department at Ryerson was not all that familiar with mad movement organizing. So why MAD studies for me is because that was really kind of the central um, community space that I was really becoming politicized at the time that I was um, both thinking through academic stuff, but also thinking through uh, how to make change within the world. And so it wasn't actually academia that brought me to MAD studies, it was the community and the community knowledge uh, that then eventually got legitimized uh, through the school. But at that time, it wasn't MAD studies at all. Right. So it was, it was 
like a grassroots movement you're saying it was something that community members needed this kind of re this um a new way of thinking about madness that the community that survivors developed um in order to kind of push back right against like psychiatric oppression um and it wasn't acknowledged in the academy until we can say very recently yeah incredibly recently i think that's an interesting thing um to think about uh in terms of how quickly uh fields of studies can emerge and how much can change through that um because to see that trajectory from uh pre something even having uh, a distinct uh name and into a space where that very same, for instance, School of Social Work now has integrated or adopted kind of community uh, language into their very kind of mission statements and things like that is a pretty significant shift. I also find it very interesting because it then has shown me kind of the ways in which academia approaches knowledge production and also the legitimization of who is a knowledge producer, because some of the things that a lot of academics are being named as the first person to write about, the first mm -hmm. person to think about, or as being experts, in fact, are not the first people I've heard talking about these issues or these topics or um, are, uh, that these knowledges expand and exist and started well beyond any um, of us within these privileged positions started putting our names on them. Right. I like that. I like that you're so adamant about acknowledging the very real history of theoretical thinking outside of academia, right? That, and actually most of it has started with uh, community members and, and people who were, yeah, who required this new way of thinking in order to survive. So I wanna move on to the next question to talk to you about your particular kind of topic or project that you wanted to share with us today. Is there, is there something in particular that you wanted to chat about? Sure. So in order to kind of set myself up in terms of how I'm going to talk about what, what I'm working on right now, I'm going to give kind of a more fulsome introduction of myself as a way of um, situating myself in the work that I do. Okay. I do this, yeah, I do this for a lot of reasons. And I do this almost every time I am talking to somebody about my work or giving, um, giving a formal presentation or teaching things on it because my work almost always is coming from so many disparate practices that it's helpful to kind of uh, chunk it out into different roles or different ways that I situate myself in that work. All right, so, I look forward to this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so when I so this is this has become a way that I've made sense of it pretty regularly now. So when I introduce myself, I often reference the late psychiatric survivor and activist Diana Capone by mm -hmm. saying that I'm a woman who wears many hats. So in recognition of kind of the politics of situating myself in the work. Um, I come to this conversation first and foremost as an artist. I have an active and a young studio practice. 
I have formal and informal training in various fiber arts practices, which means I work with all things textiles. I make quilts, I naturally dye fabric, I make banners and protest flags and pennants, I design bandanas, and these pieces get hung in exhibits. They are made through community organizing and they're mobilized in community activation. I'm also the current board president of my cooperative studio in Toronto, um, which is the Contemporary Textile Studio Co-op, which is a group studio in the Arts and Culture Hub in the 401 Richmond building. And I think this matters to bring into it because where I make my work and how I set up um, my arts practice is always alongside overlapping and also distinctive like separate community spaces. I also generally introduce myself as an activist. So in various capacities, I have been involved in different elements of the psych survivor, consumer survivor or mad movement in, in Toronto and beyond for the last 13 or so years. I attempt to do this work through uh, feminist and queer and anti-oppressive um, perspectives with the consideration of my role working alongside and in solidarity of anti-racist and anti-colonial efforts and movements. And then my last piece of my introduction, as I said, was a very fulsome and long introduction, is that I am a reluctant academic. So I come to this space seeing academic institutions as complicated sites that have allowed me to maintain a significant amount of power and privilege in this world. I turn to fields like critical disability studies and MAD studies and critical craft theory or critical craft praxis as tools informing the exploration that takes shape in my work. So largely throughout this podcast, I'll talk about the work that grew into my PhD dissertation, but I'll also talk about where I'm growing out of that work as well. And so much of this work in the PhD project and beyond has also seen academic spaces as largely inadequate or useless at times. I'm neither entirely anti-intellectual nor overly theory driven. I kind of am always balancing or moving between the two of finding kind of theory um, and academic uh, uh, thinking and knowledge and spaces as useful tools, but also as useless tools. And so in the ways that I do situate myself as an academic, because I can't pretend that I'm not an academic, my work attempts to create new spaces where humanities-based academic practices are opened up and done differently. So that that was a big mouthful for you. And I guess like to wrap that into like that's who I am and kind of how I do work and to wrap that into kind of what types of projects I'll be talking to you about is I'll be talking about the ways in which I uh, do uh, what 
generally Canadian funding bodies are referring to as research creation, but also loosely are referred to as arts-based research, studio-based practices, um, but in particular, uh, turning to craft or what I like to see as activist aesthetics. And I refer to it as that because I draw on different kind of creative and cultural practices that are at the forefront of social movement organizing. Um, I'll be talking to you about how I, I turn to that as a place where we can produce knowledge and also think through um, how to affect social change in this world. So let's get right to it then. I want to know, like, what is it that, um, what was the question that you were asking in your work? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, that's, that's a hard one. I went into my project, um, if we're specifically speaking about the dissertation project. Yeah. With, yeah, with a whole, with a whole host of questions in which I was asking um uh, i was thinking through kind of the relationship between madness and cultural production so i was asking questions around the aesthetics of madness right um which then also had me thinking through the role of of contextualizing that socially and historically um i was i was exploring what it means um, for us to consider the role of storytelling, representation, community arts practices, and, and I guess at the heart of what I was doing was unpacking or thinking through what can mad art do. Hmm. I mean, I love questions like that. I love questions that are so clearly active right um not you're not exploring what it is right i think you're very much i would say taking on a kind of delusian approach you're asking what it does what is its impact um how does it change i'm wondering you don't say you were you, you know you don't really take up theory um uh or not really as much as you, you know other scholars do I'm wondering, was there, besides disability and math studies, was there any kind of theory that you reflected on, took on, consider as an underlying support system for your thinking? No, I think that um, I use, I kind of approach re research work in very similar ways to uh, how I approach making art and specifically working from quilt-based uh, skill sets or aesthetics in which I am often um, looking at scraps of things and mm -hmm. pulling them together in how they work in the moment. And so it's true that I don't use theory in the same ways that other um, scholars often do, but that's because I think that I also approach um, research and knowledge creation very differently. So it's never ever my intention to reproduce how a qualitative researcher would engage with theory. Right. So do I use theory and do I kind of a, apply it and think through it and sometimes 
um, pick it up as a tool that can help me to um, have particular conversations? Absolutely. Uh, am I generally married to any particular theoretical framework? Um, no, uh, which I think is some of the uh, benefits of doing work in this way, but also is some of the difficulties of having conversations across these um, methodological practices because yeah. when people approach arts kind of based or informed or studio practices within trying to make sense of them when they are not artists they want it to fit into the molds of particularly qualitative research because we're used to approaching art as if we can interpret it and translate it and that the power of the art is how we understand it through that method but what artists are trying to say is that art has such um, a powerful impact when we allow it to provoke us because of what it um, creates out of that relationship between the maker, uh, what is made, the process of making, and also the audience, that all these pieces have a relationship and the feelings uh, and the change and the ideas and the questions that get provoked through artistic processes and creative practices is just very different than how you, um, how you how you do research when you are doing it from qualitative or quantitative practices. I mean, I think that's, I think that's so, that's such a nice challenge to qualitative theorists or to qualitative researchers, right? Is like to think about the relationship between, you know, the materials or the people or the things that they're studying, right? To think about um, how, you know, what emotive response it has, what connections it conveys, to ask the question like you did, what does it do? And I really appreciate that kind of pushback that artists are bringing to kind of qualitative research. So I want to know, like, what is it that you've made or and what has it done? Can you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Um, and I also want to like put a little caveat too, because it's not as if my approach to theory is the same as other artists approach to theory. Lots of folks who work with research creation or center their studio practices in their research work are also very married to particular uh, theoretical frameworks or theorists. It's just that my way of engaging both creatively and also kind of conceptually has always been to cut things up, scatter them out, and then look at what is uh, working for me in those moments. So it's like it's there's there's not a you know one approach that is the way that you do arts based research. Yeah, I mean it's it, what's what's really compelling. It I mean I don't want to say that this is what your approach is because. I don't know how I, I know how artists feel about collage, but is it kind <laughs> of like, can I use collage as a metaphor? Yeah. So um, actually, and I think <laughs> perhaps the joke between us, because we've taught together, Fady, uh, in courses that uh, invite artistic production as final projects, is we <laughs> often give the rule to our students that we don't accept collages. Um, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna say what I always say to students, which collage, in fact, is a very legitimate practice um, in art. Uh, it is that with, depending on where you're at in in your own kind of uh, journey in art for students, the collage is generally not the best suggestion for a final assignment when right. they're just when they're not being taught artistic. Uh, techniques or skills. Yeah. Um, I, I try to both, I think that I do use, when I say that I make research in the same way that I make quilts, so I wouldn't use collage, I always use quilts because that really is my entry point to my research, and it has always been my entry point to any type of textile-based work that I do because Quilting was the first place that I entered art in a way that really um, resonated with me. Is that I, I, it will come across as if I am saying it metaphorically that I do research like I, like I make quilts, but in fact, in many ways, it's also not metaphorically in that I literally will sit with texts. So when I am reading, um, when I am reading different authors or different theorists, I do in fact very much start to cut up the words. I pull out things that are standing out to me or really resonating with the project that I'm working on or feel useful or are matching up with something else I'm reading. And then I start to pull them together and then I stand back. And so it's like a very literal um, uh, um, piecing of the, of, the, of the different thoughts that I'm engaged with. I mean, it almost sounds to me like it's a, like a material way to code, right? Like we know qualitative researchers use all this software, right, to code. And it seems like you're using like real text, you're cutting them up, you're rearranging them, you, like you said, you're stepping back. And it is a kind of building of a quilt, right? It's more purposeful, Um yeah, I, it's. I mean, it sounds like a really compelling way of doing research, um, and one that probably has existed for long periods of time until you know we moved away from actually reading books and, <laughs> and actual texts. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that it's like there's an interesting thing in which we are kind of constantly, often oscillating in these academic spaces where we. Um, feel as if we um, don't have the tools we need to be doing the jobs that we should do. So it's that constant talking about whether or not you have that imposter syndrome. And I think that that sometimes has us uh, stepping away from our real embodied reactions and making sense of how the theory is sitting within the material realities of our worlds. So when I'm doing, that's the other piece of why it's not a metaphor, is when I'm researching or working on a project, I am just as much to me, space matters deeply. So I um, do my research in multiple sites. I am either um, at my home office. I am, uh, for this year, I am, I do have office in an office space. So I have lots of books at my office space. Um, and I also have uh, 
resources in my studio space. And in all of those spaces, I actually have combinations of both um, theoretical texts and books, so books and articles and things that I'm reading, um, but I also have access to a lot of my artistic materials. And so I'm constantly moving back and forth between the two. And I think another site that matters for me to talk about in relationship to the, to the work that I do is um, actually being um, on and with the land. So really making sense of what it what it means to engage in practices that um, I'm like I'm thinking a lot through what it what it means to work in solidarity um, with indigenous communities and or anti-colonial and anti-racist movements while working with and on um, the land. So working with actual plants um, and living matter to create the art that I make. That's great. Um, uh, so I guess I want to get back to one of the questions I asked before is, um, what did you find that the art can do? Before you asked me that question, you said, what, what do I make? Um, and you asked, what was the impact? Which also then is the question of what does it do? Right. And so um, I work on projects in different ways, but I'm usually making things in relationship to um, an event. So it's like I'm either in a community space in which I'm working with a group to um, create, say, banners for a movement, for an activation, for the development of kind of camaraderie and uh, celebration of community identity. Um, I could be in my own uh, studio space by myself. So sometimes I bring people into my studio. Sometimes I go into, uh, into either organizations or community spaces to work with people with textiles. And sometimes I'm by myself in my studio practice and I'm thinking through the issues and topics that are coming up um, in my own relationship with the world, with the communities around me. And I'm thinking through those conceptually and often those pieces are the pieces that are um, going towards exhibits um, or things like that. Um, so what does, what does that do? I think that it, I think that it does a lot of things. I think that it, um, uh, I think that it opens up critical questions. So it has us taking, taken for granted, um, experiences in the world and pausing and hopefully thinking about them differently or um, just even taking the time to slow down and think about them. I, I often am making in very slow ways. Mm. So this space to contemplate and this space to ask critical questions, uh, like I prefer, Sometimes I prefer when artwork um, ends, like takes us to a place where we have more questions than what we start with. That right. kind of the purpose of art can be meaningful when it really, um, really 
opens up possibilities, um, when it speaks to the messiness of um, what is happening in our community relations. So often I find that researchers who are not artists but, do, but doing arts-based research want to translate other people's art for us. Mm. But in fact, I think that that takes away the very um, messiness um, of community spaces that don't neatly fit into our research practices. I think that it allows us to really, um, uh, like art is a way of documenting community. Art is a way of moving away from the intellectualization and the commodification of our identities. It's a way I, I am most moved and most um, uh, excited about art that has me looking outwards into the world um, and thinking about what needs changed, how do we change it, how could we build something differently together, as opposed to what often non-artists who are researching art um, do, which is look at art as a way to understand the maker. I mean, what's really compelling, I mean, you talk about documentation, and I can't help but think of like, you know, in summary, your answer could, could be art witnesses, that's what it does. Right. Like there's something about it being uh, a document of what's happening in the world or with that movement or with this group of people that they took the time, however slow, to create this thing that, you know, speaks to their particular time and place. Yeah, absolutely. I think that often we, um, especially when we're um, thinking about art that is tied in with community, um, Sometimes we get, I think, hyper-focused on this idea as art being creating possibilities for representation mm. um, or showing us different people, different bodies, different ways of being. Um, and that is very inward looking. And, and that's a way that a lot of audiences do respond to art. But I also think art can, I think the audience has a role. So art isn't just about the product of the art. It's also not just about the maker of the art, but it's about how the art, it shows us a lot about like what an audience does with the art. Um, it tells us a lot as well. Like the audience has a very distinct role and we know this, right? Because representation, um, uh, representation matters a great deal in creative practices and cultural kind of uh, things but also we can have like really radical and disruptive representation that shows us uh, different ways of being in this world and yet the audience will still read that as um, uh, I always when it comes to mad art I refer to it as the the aesthetics of mental illness in which even if you're speaking to um, structural level issues like experiences of discrimination or oppression or or having us think differently about madness in the world even if that's what your art is provoking most audiences are going to read it as a way to understand symptomatology of the mad artist right. because 
audiences are not exempt from what the dominant discourse of engaging with both what is made, but also the maker themselves. You're describing it as though it kind of, its possibilities never end, right? With each new audience, with each new interaction, there's a potential for it to do something different. Yeah, and I think that it's like, I love art because I think art does have that potential. So it's like, art has the potential to create ruptures, Mm. to open up space for us to explore, to engage with new ideas and new lines of inquiry, but it doesn't inherently do that. So where we place art, how we take up art matters, but I'm so interested in the ways in which artists and 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 people engaged in cultural production and and the very kind of act of engaging with creativity creativity is at the forefront of our social movement organizing you don't show up to a protest without seeing banners and flags and pins and you're not in kind of diy spaces without zines and you know like it's like uh, music it, like compels us in ways there's 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 so many examples of how you can see art as just giving us a way to dream not just dream differently but m- mobilize those like mobilize our ideas of how to build worlds differently and so it's this idea of both that art is political but what that means is not inherently that it's radical or that it's unsettling the status quo but that it also is um a key piece in doing that so let's move on to segment two now. Um, I like to call this the middle or the liminal. And so I want to ask you, Jenna, who is your current academic crush? Mm, yeah. Um, so I'm going to say that right now, because as I was kind of going over, um, and I imagine that folks know, like you pre-sent along some questions for me so that this wasn't totally out of the blue thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Unless any of you are not clear on the behind the scenes of that. (laughs) But (laughs) um, yeah, there's this weird thing, right? We are in this time of a pandemic which is totally turning our worlds upside down. And so as I was going through what we um, could be touching on or what we perhaps would talk about together, um, some of the questions, it's like if you had asked me two weeks ago, would, um, yeah, it just, it, they would just be so different, but I don't want to ignore the fact that being in the time of the pandemic is very real and having very distinct distinct impacts on us. And I have to be honest that right, right now in this time and space, I don't have an academic crush. Hmm. I, I'm like very, very very disappointed in what's happening in kind of academic institutional spaces in which we are continuing to push forward as if this is just life as is. Um, I'm very, um, I'm, I'm just much more 
much more, I have so much more feelings of kind of admiration and love and appreciation for um, like academia is not doing it for me, you know, and, and, and the way that my kind of um, the way, yeah, the way that I engage with the world is that I don't just like pull off at, like academic names or or theorists because they're sitting in my brain because I'm always turning to them. Like I said earlier on, like I'm I'm constantly um, shifting and changing who's who's present in my work, who I'm looking to, who I've who I'm thinking about, um, and. I don't have an academic crush. I have a lot of crushes on just like all of all of the people I see showing up in very human and compassionate uh, and caring ways right now in the world. And so I don't have an answer for that one for you. Well, I think you have an answer. I think it's a really good one. It's you want academics and academia to step up at, during this time and you think they haven't. And I think a lot of people kind of agree with you. And so I like this critical answer to this question. Um, you're not giving your love for free. You, you <laughs> want it to be reciprocal. And I think that's healthy. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, and I think I'm deeply present because a lot of the, a lot of, um, a lot of academic practices that I am, generally engaged in our spaces in which we are claiming to be uh, community-based, community-oriented, yeah. informed by community. And I just have to say those who take up the role as academics, and I suppose I feel this because I do have like a very stable job for a year, and yet because it's only a contract, I feel precarity still. Mm -hmm. knowing that that's likely not always going to be my position and yet still having that memory of always of having a, a precarious career up until now is that it is not academics that and and that's not true too right like there are I I, I also have to pause and say like I definitely know tons of academics who are just showing up in amazing ways but in fact um it, it's i i'm not thinking about that in particular like particularly related to um their role as academics right yeah it's not their work for example at this moment but their actions that you're like referencing yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people would agree with you that there, that there could have been other things that, especially like community run or community focused departments or, you know, lots of different, um, you know, social science studies spaces could be doing differently. I'm thinking of all, you know, those international students who are, you know, currently at the University of Toronto um, who are still having to pay rent. And, and I'm wondering where kind of all the leftist academics are, you know, besides, you know, signing a petition. Um, when can you leverage your power for this particular kind of group of people? Um, yeah, and hopefully they'll show up for them. Yeah, yeah.
So, um, best advice for younger academics. What uh, do you have any advice to give for younger academics or even students? Yeah, so I guess it's like my advice um, deeply resonates with what I'm experiencing in this time of global crisis in which I think this is the time to, to see this as an opportunity to do things differently. I think it's a, a place and a space where we really need to learn how to show up for cross-movement organizing. I think that my advice would be to, to work in ways that you are actually always uncomfortable because discomfort really helps us grow in radical ways. But I also think actions like being humble and listening to others and holding ourselves accountable, being fierce in our politics, and I have this kind of dual um, because I am a I'm very much driven through this kind of fiery approach to life, and so I'm always thinking about how you how um, there's a really powerful thing in in allowing your anger at the injustices of this world to provoke movement, mm. but also that if we move forward in ways that demonstrate generosity and care and compassion and just generally promote the flourishing um, especially of those who are most impacted by the oppressive structures of this world that no matter what you are doing that we have to be doing these things that's great so let's move on to segment three outside the project the research the work the art um, I want to ask you, um, who's the most famous person you've met and what was that like? And if you haven't met a famous person, who's the most memorable person you've met? Okay, so I'm going to, you have your first two questions in this last segment. I'm going to, I'm going to come right at you and let you know I have no answers for them. Okay. <laughs> So I, um, A, have not met, um, uh, not to my knowledge, I haven't met particularly famous people. And yet also, I think being a person who is, um, uh, yeah, I, I have a lot of folks in my life who are artists and who are relatively well known in different capacities and, um, so I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't have a particular story about meeting a famous person, and I don't. I'm. I'm terrible at decision making, so I don't have a most memorable person. <laughs> Except for I think maybe here I would say honestly the most memorable person that it's like incredibly cheesy, but the most memorable person um, that I will put in there is is my grandma. Like yeah. she's. She is the most impactful person on my life. Um, she's really the person who taught me to be fierce and to, um, she's the only person who I will allow to call me doctor after I graduated. Otherwise I find it too incredibly weird. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but no, she's a, she's a very kind of fiery um, crass uh woman and and she's my person in this world and so she really has always been the one who has 
it just inspired me to not hold back that it's that it's you i'm that like it's never consideration of being too much because expansiveness um is the expansiveness being fiery being fierce is a thing that is valuable within this world that's so lovely how is she doing during this time i'm guessing she's a little bit older yeah, so that's really hard. It's really present. Um, I, my grandma is living in a home right now. And so that that was a very, that was the first time I really experienced grief in regards to the pandemic is when, when there was that um, distinct cutoff where nobody was allowed, except for workers, were not allowed to go in or out of where she's living. And that became incredibly um, scary because of, we all know that in these neoliberal times, <laughs> to get all academic-y, but that our, that our institutions are under-resourced, yeah. understaffed, um, and it's not easy work working in these situations by any means. So the stresses and the tensions lead to um, uh, tension and also violence on both ends. And so the scariness of closing that in and closing that down because um, the reality, what I would see is that in the institution, because the government doesn't fund enough workers. Um, when you go and visit, you are also working. So you are there feeding not just your loved one, but everybody else at their table. And so uh, she's okay. She is, um, it's really cool because the staff, um, the people working in the place that she lives, have made efforts to kind of do FaceTime calls oh, good. with their own personal phones. And so while my grandma has not been able to hear since she was 20 and her sight is not there, um, it still gives her a sense of connection to the outside world. But it's 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 scary, right? Like it's what this is real what we're going through. Yeah. Well I I wish her the best and I know that she knows you're there for her, so that's hopefully comforting in some sense. I want to move on to obscure fact, but you seem to not have one. So yeah, I'm wondering but if I, I will, skip it. I will tell you why I don't have one. Like, <laughs> we're going to skip it, but I don't have an obscure fact for two reasons. Because um, I'm a person who, so I identify as mad, uh, and I'm a person who's experienced a fair amount of trauma in my life. And there's a distinct uh, thing that when you go through trauma, your memory gets very um, messed up. And so my brain doesn't hold information like that. So, uh, so that's one thing. I don't hold obscure facts. They might come to me and I might have them in passing moments, but I wouldn't be able to recall one if I'm asked to. Secondly, um, in the places and spaces in which you might pull up an obscure fact, like if you are socializing, I in fact would not do that. Uh, I I would probably just hide away from people. If I don't have meaningful things to talk to you about, I probably am 
I'm definitely not the person to draw on an obscure fact. And also psych medications, they mess with your brain also. So I think by by saying you didn't have an obscure fact, you gave us three obscure facts. (laughs) (laughs) There. Okay, there you go. (laughs) Yeah, I think you did tell us a few things that I had no idea, even though like I feel like I'm, you know, I've been around mad people for a long time now. It's not an obscure fact, though, to you that I dislike people just largely. So. <laughs> I'm so glad you like me. <laughs> so let's get to what you're reading. What's on the nightstand or on your bookshelf right now that you can't put down? In this very moment, I'm not reading because I'm marking hundreds of assignments. Fair. And on top of the fact is that I am, uh, I, like, I'm, I'm not going to not talk about this, um, it, it, which I've mentioned many times already, but not only am I marking hundreds of assignments, but my productivity or my efficiency in the pandemic has decreased so significantly. So what would take me maybe a day to do will take me 10 days or more to do. So reading is definitely a thing that once I start to process things slower, reading for fun is harder for me to do. Uh, I think most recently, pleasure reading, I've been reading Octavia Butler. Okay, yeah. I mean, I just finished Octavia Butler's um Lilith is it Lilith's blood yeah yeah I finished the first one and I thought it was really good I just couldn't bring myself to pick up the next one yeah that's so I'm reading the trilogy and I both smartly and foolishly bought them all combined in one. Oh wow that's and a heavy book so I'm about uh midway through the second one uh and I love it a lot, um, but also am not currently uh, not currently like in it because I'm marking. But also the thing with reading for me is I really, really enjoy um, when people gift books because I think that what we read for pleasure is such an intimate part of us. What we see as meaningful in terms of like what what is being created through the writing and through this world building, uh, seeing what others believe that you should be opening yourself up to or get excited about, I think is one of the most meaningful gifts that people can give. And so recently, most of what I've been reading is uh, uh, books that people are gifting to me. So I have a couple of poetry books and short story books that are also on my nightstand, but I'm just, I'm waiting. I haven't gotten to them. I don't have the kind of mental capacity right now. I can't wait for the next occasion when I can gift you books. That's such a wonderful thing. Yeah. (laughs) So um, what hobby are you currently enjoying or have you, have you enjoyed for some time and how did you get started in it? Okay. Yeah. So I feel like the, the last half of this podcast really will demonstrate to anyone who decides to listen all the way through um, (laughs) my really 
the heart or core of my personality, which I think a few folks who know me very well would describe as being very salty, um, <laughs> which is a very distinct characteristic. I am uh, first generation Canadian on my mom's side and my entire family grew up in Scotland and salt is pretty much the only thing we use to flavor our food. <laughs> so I'm saying that's where it comes from. But my point is, is that I actually kind of dislike the idea of the hobby because it has this very, it has a number of weird kind of ways in which it's been framed in history. And I think that impacts how we view or value particular practices now. Like hobbies are often thought of as if they're like trivial pursuits um, on one hand. And I think also the privilege of having the time or the capacity or the resources to do hobbies also hyper has us thinking about um, it like reinforces productivity. And I'm a person who thinks that staying in bed and going very slowly is a very, um, it's the way that my body resists in this world. I don't think it's inherently the only way to exist um, in being like in, in resisting say capitalist um, or other, other structures, um, but it's the way that I resist. And so, I also think that hobbies are often tied to the types of pursuits I do for a living. So craft-based practices, quilting, even other areas of the arts are often undervalued or devalued because they are positioned as hobbies or, or not worthwhile. But I won't be a complete asshole and I don't know if you have like a language warning on your podcast. I think that I've been pretty good so far. I haven't sworn at all. No, you're good. And you're not being an asshole. I think it's <laughs> totally I fine to provide a critique <laughs> to the term hobby. And I I personally enjoyed the education on the term. So, But, but if I, you did have a leisure activity. Yeah, um, be leisure even. Who has the, who has this, like the spoons for leisure? But I think what I'm you're sorry, I've been at, in England for too long. They call their community centers leisure centers. I don't know how to come back. I do know, like, I know, I, I get what you're getting, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is like, who am I as a person outside of like professional pursuits? Yeah. Or like, who am I outside of paid work or what do, what else is there to me or, or what brings me joy, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So I do have some answers for that. I have to be a bit of an asshole first and then I will provide you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, I think first and foremost, uh, and this is like really prevalent now in the pandemic is I like to drink <laughs> and I'll, and and what I mean by this is like I actually can't get through a day without um, excessive amounts of Earl Grey tea, okay. and this is deeply tied to um, uh, in a complex way in my relationship with madness. It's a thing that's very grounding, um, based on like the the act of drinking tea, the smells, the sensations, the heat, the touch and stuff. So tea is like necessary, but also 
I won't survive a day without tea, but I wouldn't survive life without good scotch. Mm. So drinking is one. I have a couple. Another one is I like to be outdoors. Um, usually that means I'm out with, uh, I have two very um, pretty Adorable. <laughs> I have two very big dogs. Um, and so they really um, uh, keep me going outdoors, whether it's like in the winter time, snowshoeing or hiking in the summer or camping or, or what have you. I've always um, really loved being um, being outside. And so like, and more and more, it's like all of this stuff deeply ties into what I do even in professional spaces because the outdoors is very meaningful to how I think through through the creative pursuits that I do. I also really love baking pies. It's a thing that I do, like, that's how I show love to people. It is a thing that's very tied to my family's history. My, my papa was a, a baker by trade. Like, in Scotland, you would kind of often, well, especially when you were lower class, you, you, you were brought up through trades, and my, and my papa was a baker. So it has this very tangible, um, like, like memory based it's a practice where i'm where i'm kind of working through memories while also nourishing my body or other bodies and then um i like to play music uh so i am often kind of um i've always liked to play music but i've never really had i was i was never really fortunate enough to take um, musical lessons outside of school and like just the standard music classes but I was always generally very good at it in school um, so every couple of years I'm usually learning a new instrument so I have in the past learned a little bit of fiddle I am currently learning how to play the piano and I am also wow. Yeah, and I'm also uh, currently uh, starting a punk rock band. I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's like a queer punk, uh, uh, yeah, thing. Which is like when I grew up, that was my, that was how I, how I, that was who I was in the world as a teenager. It was like <laughs> I was a kid with a shaved head who listened to Rancid and the Sex Pistols. And now I get to live out those kind of teenage fantasies being a lead singer in a punk band in which I can also, because I play a little bit of guitar and stuff, um, I can do some of the, the instrumental in it as well. That's so great. All right. And so we're finally come to the final question. Um, and here we go. So Jenna, how do you think disability can save the world? Okay. So I'm actually going to tell you that I don't think disability or madness can change the world inherently. Oh, this is not a surprise that you are going <laughs> against the script. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, look, I'll never make things easy for you. Um, but, but yeah, um, I, think that, I think that when we kind of approach this type of a question in this way, it often gets 
to a place where we're like it's reductive thinking uh, and that's what gets us very stuck in identity politics i th i think that um we talk about this a lot when we uh and when we do this sometimes we over romanticize our thoughts on what it means for existing differently in this world and how that can disrupt and unsettle things so I think that identities of difference um, and how we exist in the world also have to be paired with revolutionary politics. Because what I experience as a person who identifies as mad is that many, and, and also kind of organizes in, 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 in cross-movement spaces, so spaces that um, um, have a lot of representation of mad and disabled bodies, um, what I experience is that, in fact, most of the times, it's not doing anything different. <laughs> so I find that we're still working from capitalist and imperialist and specifically white supremacist values. And we're just generally constantly reinforcing the status quo. So I think that disability and madness can teach us about how to activate a, re a revolution. Um, but we actually have to be willing to pair that with the mobilization of those revolutionary politics. Uh, in that way, we can completely rebuild the worlds that we see around this, the worlds that we see around us. And I do think that now is the time that we, that we, that we, that we start afresh, that we build things up differently, and that we draw on the values that, um, um, that we can take from how we are in the world, whether it's um, being mad or disabled or otherwise through queer or feminist or um, drawing on kind of black and indigenous and people of color organizing. I think there's so much we can learn and yet it doesn't just happen because we have these identities of difference. So I think we, I think disability, I suppose, can save the world, but I also am very, um, I'm, I'm very reluctant to, to admit to that. I think that there is a lot more, I, I just think that there's a, a, there, there's a lot more that we need to work through to make that possible. And, and I, I specifically think that that means um, asking critical questions about what values and what practices are materialized in our community spaces. Okay, Jenna, thank you so much. Uh, I think this has been a wonderful interview and um you have been an excellent guest and i'm so glad that you came on the podcast thanks again thank you for having me baby all right see you later bye thanks again to dr jenna reed for coming on the show it was a great opportunity to speak with her about her work um and her insights over the next few weeks, I'll have more disabled and mad studies scholars come on the show um, to delve deep into the questions that I pose. I want to take a minute to talk about access. This podcast is now available to deaf and hard of hearing folks through YouTube, um, where I'm publishing videos, captioned videos of the podcast. 
as well. Full transcripts of the podcasts will be available on my website, fadyshenuda.com. So please go check it out. This podcast is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Fady Shenuda. Get in touch with me by sending me an email at disabilitysavestheworld.com. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time on Disability Saves the World.